0: no filter podcast produced by students at the new zealand broadcasting school coming up we talk to new zealand first mp shane jones explain the stupidly complex rules of the election and have a yarn to jack tame about the last
1: explosive
0: week in politics
1: 2020 election year On September 19, millions of Kiwis will head to the polling booths to cast their votes and decide who is in charge of Aotearoa for the next three years. People our age, the 18 to 25 year
0: olds of New Zealand, are notorious for not getting amongst the political system. Together we comment, tag, react and share moments like this.
1: Flashing. Okay, boomer. My fucking good eye. Get some
0: guts! But pay absolutely no attention to the bland,
2: boring crap like this. Doesn't give my opponents much time to run up
3: to an election, does it?
1: I'm Mitch Redman. And I'm Nick James. And we're here to chat politics. With, with no filter. filter.
0: Week on the podcast, Mitch Redman talks to prominent New Zealand First MP Shane Jones. Shane started in Parliament way back in 2005, originally as a Labour MP under the Helen Clark government. He was in Labour until 2014, until he retired from politics, or so we thought. In 2017, Shane Jones returned to New Zealand politics, joining New Zealand First, famously led by the most experienced politician in Parliament, Winston Peters.
2: Look, I, uh, I can't win. I can't win the joke stakes. I'm looking at one.
0: But who are New Zealand first? NZ First was founded in 1993 by Winnie and is a party that is centre right of the political spectrum. This essentially means that their decisions often fall in New Zealanders having to pay less tax and a focus on creating jobs for the country. However, they also believe in having a strong welfare blanket for those who need it, introducing policies such as the gold card for elderly Kiwis. They also fall to a more conservative edge to moral beliefs, for example blocking the first bill for a Earlier this year. And that brings us to today. NZ First formed a coalition government with Labour and the Greens, and Shane Jones is now Minister for Regional Economic Development. After that lengthy intro, please enjoy Mitch Redman's interview with Shane Jones.
1: First question that I've got, I just want to sort of learn a bit more about you and what you were doing at our age. So I believe you attended St. Stephen's School before heading off to the University of Auckland. How were you your university yeah. years and what did you study?
3: So I finished in St. Stephen's school after five years of being cooped up at uh, St. Stephen's Anglican Maori Boys School. And uh, the first thing I uh, did was try and find me a girlfriend. And uh, after several failed attempts, I, uh, I actually did that. That interfered with my studies, not to the point of being thrown out of university, because I was blessed with getting a Maori Education Foundation a scholarship. Sadly, too much of that disappeared in the local hotel. An iconic site called the Kiwi Tavern no longer in existence. But um, I got involved quite apart from you know, learning to make your way in a, in a, in a kind of a domestic sense, uh, having a partner and everything. I got involved with Maori um, land politics and protest politics at a young age. And then after two years at the uh, Auckland University, the people from uh, the survivors of the Maori battalion who had stormed casino said, you are proving to be more of an irritating, irksome target than even casino was. Pack up your bags for taking your scholarship unless you show signs of growing up. And then I washed up for my next couple of years at Victoria University and I uh, got interested in politics, did some law. Um, So I I did a broad generic degree with um, a lot of um, Maori studies. Uh, I think I did um, public policy as well. And then I went to Aussie and did some post-grad study, uh, largely on the Scarborough beach. Uh, A fine fine Indian Ocean uh, set of rolling waves they were, and then came home and you know, By that time, I had some young children, and bit by bit, sort of joined the rat race, which most parents have to get into, which is uh, get a mortgage, get a job. And then uh, when I was a bit older than you guys, 30, I think I was 30, I got awarded a Harkness Fellowship. And that, much to the surprise, of the largest tribe in Maoridom, Ngāpuhi, 125,000 of them, I washed up on the steps of Harvard. <laughs> So uh, allegations were that I either um, had someone else sit the examination or they were particularly liberal on the entrance criteria for that particular year. So that's how I kind of, to the extent you're asking about what was my life like as a university student, that's the experience I had at uni, mate.
1: That's awesome. And yeah, I had another question sort of about Harvard. So obviously not many New Zealanders can say that they've actually, they're a graduate of Harvard University. How was that time in your life? And obviously your whanau would have been, you know, pretty proud of you to have a fenonga there over at harvard over in america
3: yeah yeah yes yeah. so i came from a i came from a garden variety family background up north of kaita a mix of the a really strong maori part to our identity grew up next to the marae my grandmother had us um going to the maori anglican church uh, at a very early year but we just did garden variety things riding horses helping on the farm and enjoying shooting uh, which probably now would be illegal, given the creeping regulation as a consequence of a certain imbecile who came to New Zealand and, and did that distardly deed. Mm. <laughs> so when I went to Harvard, it really did burden me because I thought, wow, well, there's hardly anyone from New Zealand, let alone from Kaitai Awanui, had washed up there. So I genuinely did acquit myself. Mm. I had my wife and three young children. And then when I finally got around to graduating, my mother sold a sub- substantial potential number of uh, my father's cows, uh, funded an air ticket for her and my younger brother, who, uh, interestingly enough, is the same age as my oldest daughter. Uh, And I'm making this sound like I grew up as if if we were part of the brood of the Waltons family (laughs) or something out of an American sort of prairie movie, but that's how we rolled in the far north, mate.
1: As you mentioned earlier, you got into politics at quite a young age. As a young adult myself, what was it about politics that captured your interest and made you want to do
3: something about it? Uh, I, I had a couple of school teachers who knew because uh, we had brilliant rugby uh, players and great rugby pedigree at St. Stephen's School. Um, sadly, I was not blessed with that genetic inheritance, <laughs> although my dad was a great rugby player. So I think uh, either out of sympathy, Or the uh, uh, the, uh, school teachers knew that I um, was born with a dictionary in my mouth and I spoke both languages. They encouraged me to perfect um, skills at debating, become better at being a wordsmith. And
1: And thanks to the wonderful Zoom technology and incredible Wi-Fi at Parliament, we unfortunately lost the rest of Shane Jones' answer there so we moved on and asked the Minister if he could explain to us as young and potentially first-time voters what the New Zealand First Party is about.
3: Uh, We're a party of economic realists of ideology one way or the other. Uh, We've positioned ourselves as a moderating influence at a time where there's a tremendous degree of uncertainty both in New Zealand and in the world, and we are never going to tolerate the massive surge that happened in New Zealand after Rogernomics, where there was total political overreach. So if you're asking me where, do, where do we stand in the pantheon of uh, thinkers in relation to economics, we're economic realists. Secondly, we're patriotic in the sense that we, we realize that immigration is uh, the, the bed is, is like the seedbed that we all grew out of, whether you're Maori or before the original um, settlers arrived, but uh, we're very, very, very allergic to unfettered uh, immigration or trying to build the nation on the basis of mass immigration. Uh, that that, that, that uh, bothers us and um, antagonizes us significantly. In relation to um, social policy, um, great believers in obviously backing people to go to university, but... We have been really keen to uphold the status associated with being qualified outside of a university as well. Uh, I personally, um, between my wife and I, we have eight kids. Um, Four of my daughters, they created opportunities for themselves without going to varsity. So we uh, conceive ourselves in that regard to be a very earthy bunch of politicians. Naturally, we're always going to be um, advocating as a force for seniors and that's to deal with the ageing dem- dem- demography of the country. And the final thing I'd say is that we're not a party of working groups. We are a party that knows you've got three years an opportunity as an opportunity to use power for good, so you get things done. Take a very practical four-square approach, use the, the levers of the state under the uh, mandate of democracy and get things done.
1: Yeah, and like you just said that, you know, the New Zealand First Party has a bit of a reputation of catering for their seniors, for their koumatua. Is there a place for young people and young adults within the New Zealand First Party?
3: And what would the New Zealand First Party do for them? Yeah, no party can be static. Whilst there's a growing number of uh, folk my age, and I was born in 1959 and older, so that is a growing, as a percentage of the population, people are living longer but no party can remain static. So our focus on um, youth has been clearly articulated through us backing the types of um, education that joins training and industry. If you want a job and you need assistance to gain a qualification that is not at a university, is this is the party for you to back. If you want a guaranteed opportunity to secure a job where that job might require for a while some state assistance as well, this is the party for you. If you also want to continue to live in the regions, or as where I came from, the boonies, we are genuinely committed to spreading the capital around New Zealand so we don't just um, run the country for metropolitan New Zealand. And that's why I've, I've been dubbed the, uh, the, uh, the champion of the provinces to ensure that young families who live there they can continue to bring their kids up there and have a higher quality of life because too many towns were derided as zombie towns mm-hmm. after the, um, the earlier governments they um, they basically broke those towns off we brought them back to life in fact it's almost like in the Bible dim bones dim bones go on a walk around so get the picture.
1: 100% Minister. Hey, and this election, you're standing in the Northland electorate. What are the biggest changes that you want to see happen for your people in Te Tai Tokerau?
3: Oh, the first thing is jobs. Sustain the current jobs that are there. Uh, drive investment that expands the ability of people to be employed and lay down a long-term foundation with better infrastructure. So whether that's digital highway, whether it's tarmac, whether it's rail, because I'm a great believer that organically, the economy has within itself, the ability to heal itself, but only with skillful navigation from the government. We don't have enough money to exclusively heal the economy. The people that comprise the economy are investors, workers, firms, employers, and they should look to a government in the north that will back infrastructure, back jobs, and have the willingness to uh, leverage the crown balance sheet, to underwrite development in those areas where conventional economics probably has passed them by.
1: Next up on the No Filter podcast, Nick James unravels some of the confusing rules and regulations set out by the Electoral Commission. Here is...
3: What the
0: That sound will become more and more familiar in the next few months, as politicians leave their fancy offices at the Beehive for the campaign trail, in which they'll be looking for your vote. But when it comes to campaigning, there are a few set of rules from the Electoral Commission. But who is the Electoral Commission? The Electoral Commission is a government body that controls every election in Aotearoa. This means that they help register people to vote, set up election booths, and advertise when the election will happen, and any other extra Admin around the event. You might be more familiar with their advertising their new thing. Their mascot is the strange naked orange man that pops up on TV every few years and sounds like this. You need to be enrolled to have your say in the local elections. So check you're ready at vote.nz. They don't only have a strange mascot for their ads, but some interesting rules around campaigning. I'm about to throw a list of numbers and dates at you, so feel free to listen to this a couple times if you need to. First up, from the 18th of July onwards till the night before the election, candidates can put up political signs around the country to try and convince you to vote for them. If this doesn't work for the candidates and you're still on the fence, they can start chatting your ear off with their messaging on TV and radio from the 16th of August. After all that campaigning, the early voting begins on September 5th, in which no campaigning can be done within 10 square metres of these booths in case someone... I guess gets influenced on the walk to the booth? Hopefully you've thought out your decision a bit more by then. After all that, Election Day will finally be upon us. On this day, no campaigning can be done, so all signs and other advertising must be taken down the night before. And essentially, that's about it. Once that process is followed correctly, we can find out who will be running Aotearoa for the next three years. It's a very convoluted, boring process that most people would probably never look into, but it's important, as its outcome will affect Kiwis for years to come.
1: Obviously, the polls, what the media are showing, are down at the moment. How are you feeling in-house, and how's your guys polling looking ahead of the election?
3: Well... The leader becomes very allergic if any of his caucus members get too fretful over polls. So I've uh, tended to describe them as akin to a cow pet. However, uh, in the north, I know I've got a fight on my hands. I'm. I think this is the best shot that the north is ever going to have beyond the by-election where Winston Peters beat the National Party. The National Party are polling so low that people in the north they know that if you want to be at the cabinet table, you've got to back New Zealand first and back Shane Jones. And there's an old saying in politics, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu.
1: Hey, and I've got a few questions now that young people might be interested in knowing that perhaps the mainstream media aren't asking. Um, So you've recently launched your election campaign yourself and you bopped your way onto stage listening to the Doobie Brothers' Long Train Running, what other music from that 70s, 80s era would you suggest that young people like myself should start listening to?
3: Twisted Sisters, <laughs> we're not gonna take it anymore. Although the name Twisted Sisters may, invar- may, may invariably offend some sensitive souls in the university community, but in my time, it was a great way, to join, uh, to join flesh to alcohol and have a great time. <laughs> oh,
1: that's incredible. And um, you're obviously a proud Northland man. Um, I have whanau myself that live up in Kaitaia. The big question I have to ask you is, do you prefer Oriental Bay and Wellington
3: or Shipwreck Bay? And I suggest you choose very carefully, ah. Minister. <laughs> no contest. And you may be interested to know my son, who's 27, just had about 30 or 40 guys who uh, themselves are on a journey coming back from Australia and there've been rugby league players and hefty sort of dudes and they're on a journey of identity and getting fit and they were all at Shipwreck Bay on Saturday clambering up those sand hills before they went back and took a lot of kaimoana to the marae and had a great feast. I myself was practicing my moves suitable for the Doobie Brothers song
1: That's incredible. Hey, and um, that's pretty much all the questions that I have to ask. But the last thing I just want to say is, why should young people who are perhaps disengaged from politics and don't show all that much interest, why should they vote this election and why should
3: they party vote New Zealand first? Well, the most important thing is that participate. Take the time out, cast your vote, then you've got a say in how the resources of the country are carved up what stance the country takes in terms of balancing the interests of old and young, uh, country and city, and also what the hell is happening to our country post-COVID. And um, if you're not participating, then you literally are on the menu. You're not at the table. So that would be my ext- uh, my, my my plea. And in relation to giving the party vote, well, if you want a party that will moderate either the um, liberal excesses of the Greens and Labour or the flintiness of national, then vote New Zealand first, the force of the North, Matua Shane from Kaitai Awanui. Thank you very much.
1: And that was New Zealand First MP, self-acclaimed force of the North, Minister Shane Jones. Next up on the No Filter podcast, we're joined by Kiwi Broadcasting Royalty, Q&A host Jack Tame, who wraps up the last seven days in politics.
2: The Week That
0: Was Getting straight into it It's been a shocking week uh, for National with Todd Muller's surprise departure from the leadership How well do you think the party has responded and what do you think um, it's done for the public support of the party?
2: You know, I actually think the party has responded very well given the circumstances. Obviously, it is less than ideal to have a change of leadership in a major political party this close to the election. But if you think about where National started the week compared to where National is finishing the week, I think a lot of people within the party will be very pleased. At the start of the week, you had a leader who was indecisive, who was struggling to make any decisions. You had... MPs and people within the party actively working against each other and and backstabbing. Now you have the party at least outwardly appearing to be united around a new leader. She is a leader that is well known by the public, that is relatively popular. She hasn't enjoyed huge support within the caucus itself over the last few years, but, but she enjoys you know, um significant support in the in the voting populace. She's at least given the appearance of making decisive calls when it comes to, to her caucus, her shadow cabinet, and, you know, National is now trying to focus on policies. They've announced a thirty one billion dollar infrastructure package. We don't have all of the details of that just yet. But that's a massive spend, even when compared to what what the current government has announced up to this point. So although it's been you know a, a pretty Pretty tough week in some respects. I actually think that, that many people within the National Party will be feeling more confident about the party's election prospects now than they were seven days ago.
0: And um, obviously Judith Collins has sort of, um, they've sort of gone for like an old guard type, type approach obviously in relation to Todd Muller and Judith Collins has been eyeing up the leadership role um, for years now. Um, do you think she's done a, a good job really in this first week?
2: Yeah, I, I think she's done a really good job. You know, she she's been decisive, and that sounds um, like the sort of thing you would expect from a leader of the opposition. But yeah. compared to Todd Muller, yeah, she's made some some really good and big calls quickly. So she she took about three hours to go through and and reshuffle her entire caucus. I think she um, promoted some some strong MPs. Um, she, she managed to. Um, she managed to balance some of the, you know, some of the MPs who've previously been in senior leadership positions by giving people like Simon Bridges a significant promotion and good portfolios. Even Todd Muller, of course, has been kept in her shadow front bench. So I think she was really effective in the way she did that. She's performed really well in media. I mean, Judith Collins was probably the most accessible um, MP in the National Party leading up to this point, so she's a very, very experienced you know, media performer, and you know, I, I think she's done a really good job of turning a lot of the conversations around the National Party from dysfunction into what it might look like. If it were to find itself in government, like she, she's done a lot in, in a really short space of time, mm. and I think she's um, I think she's given the appearance of being you know of being assertive, of being decisive, and you know I, I think most people are expecting perhaps more of a contest than they were in a Todd Muller versus Jacinda Ardern main party. Face off.
0: Definitely. Um, and in relation to the loss of Muller as leader, uh, Nikki Kaye and Amy Adams have both decided they're going to bow out of politics in the next election. Mm. How much of a blow is this for the Nats? It, it,
3: it
2: is a significant blow in, in that Nikki Kaye and Amy Adams were probably two of the higher profile women two of the more experienced um, MPs in the National Party, but also they were women who probably represented the interests of the, of the centrist part of the party. So, so Judith Collins, I think, could be considered someone who was generally more to the right of, say, Nikki Kaye and, and Amy Adams, and there will be some... You know, kind of marginal national voters, people who might occasionally switch between voting for Labour and National, who we felt a real sense of affinity to Nikki Kaye and, and Amy Adams, or, or at least. You know, felt like their interests were represented better by those women than by some of the more conservative members of the National Party. So, so that is probably a little bit of an issue for National. I mean, Nikki Kaye in particular was a really popular MP. She's, um, she's really well-known. She was well-regarded as the Minister for Education, and she's well-regarded by a lot of other people in Parliament. So it's certainly a loss. But that being said, I think Judith Collins has tried to balance that loss by promoting some of the other more centrist members of the party. So we've seen um, significant um, promotions for Nicola Willis um, and for Chris Bishop, who were probably considered more centrist members of the party. That they've been bumped up the national ranks quite significantly, which you know, which might work to counter the Nikki Kay, Amy Adams loss, and also it, it, it helped Judith Collins to kind of draw a line under the top Muller leadership. You know, from from everything we heard from with Inside national, Nikki Kay in particular was spending hours a day on the phone to Todd Muller when he was leader. I mean, I mean, they were so closely united in that leadership period that um, it, it would have probably been somewhat difficult for Judith Collins still having both Adams and Kay on her top bench. So, so it was actually a, a whole lot cleaner for Judith Collins than if they'd been sticking around.
0: And um, just covering up, covering up, sorry, the last of the National Party news this week, um, Judith Collins said there would be a minor shake-up of the list, but it does seem to be pretty significant um, with the two recently former leaders, uh, Simon Bridges and Todd Muller, right up at the front of the list. How important was this change?
2: Well, I think it was, I think I think she did a great job in balancing her list. What do they say? Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. <laughs> um, I, there's no suggestion that anyone. Else Else is gonna be challenging for the leadership anytime soon. But actually, you know, Todd Todd Muller, for example, would probably bring experience and good contacts to his trade portfolio. He you know, he worked for Fonterra and for, for Zespri. So there will be a lot of people who can imagine him in a role where he's traveling around the world talking up New Zealand exporters. It seems like a natural fit. Simon Bridges has been interested in foreign affairs for quite some time. He's still young. Who knows, maybe he aspires to having another go at the leadership in in years to come, in the same way that Bill English did for the National Party in the past. But um, he's shown no great interest in leading politics just yet. So, you know, I I think it's a clever move to keep those two as close as she has. And, and, you know, we've seen some other significant promotions as well. Like Dr. Shane Betty, for example, has been Brought up and he's enjoyed you know promotion after promotion over the last few months He is a Harvard-educated medical doctor, so to have him as the spokesperson for health, especially given the crises we're facing at the moment, it seems like a natural fit, or at least in in the eyes of voters, it will seem like a natural fit. So I think she's done a very good job in in balancing her reshuffle. She did it in, in a very short period of time as well, so clearly it's probably something she had been thinking about for a while. But, you know, compared to this time last week when, you know, national MPs were leaking to the media, And people in the leader's office seem very unhappy. I think there's a real sense of unity that that wasn't there, and it's funny because you know Judith Collins has been a person who's made her share of enemies within the party over the years, and so um, yeah, who would have thought that she she was actually the one to to kind of pull the party together into a more cohesive unit as quickly as she has? Of course, still two months to go though, so things could change. Jacinda
0: Ardern has been taking a bit of a backseat this week in the news. However, she did announce um, what happens next in the country's response to COVID 19 with uh, three different scenarios to different types of COVID spreads. What do you make of this?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's it's good to see that the government is planning for the potential for community transmission because, um, if anything, over the last couple of weeks, we've learned from uh, Melbourne and Sydney just how quickly things can get out of hand when they do get out. Out of hand. So, you know, it's reassuring to see the government, you know, kind of making provisional plans should that um, occur in New Zealand. I think Jacinda Ardern has been pretty happy to take a, take a bit of leave. Parliament's been in recess over the last couple of weeks and she probably wants to have as much energy as possible for the election campaign. What I think is interesting is that we haven't seen a great deal of policy from, from any of the major parties, maybe up until this infrastructure package from National. But we haven't seen much policy from Labour over the last couple of weeks. And my sense is that, um, is that Jacinda Ardern's office and labor are going to be much more not necessarily anxious, but you know they'll be they'll be they'll be they'll realise that Judith Collins probably represents a tougher challenge than anyone else within the National Party. And you know, if, if if you were to say who is the who is the one National MP who will make this government more anxious about its prospects of re-election, it would be Judith Collins. Right. And you know, it'll be interesting to see in the in the next few weeks just how. Jacinda Ardern and, and Labor handle that threat.
0: Um, just speaking of COVID, um, there's been a bit of talk of the government having a Pacific bubble with the Cook Islands and some even saying that it could be confirmed next week. Um, is the government under pressure to open up to the Pacific?
2: Yeah, to so some parts of the Pacific, it certainly is, because you know the government had, had kind of put all of its eggs into one basket and that it wanted to set up a Trans-Tasman bubble first. The reason for that is that the economic benefits to us were greater than setting up a bubble with the Pacific so the government basically thought that if we could get a bubble up and running with the Australians we would get lots of Australian tourists over here for the ski season and our tourism industry might you know, might benefit in, um, in ways that it probably wouldn't with a Pacific bubble so the problem with the Pacific bubble is that you have New Zealanders leaving New Zealand going to holiday in the Pacific rather than spending money in New Zealand so the government was really hoping to get the Trans-Tasman bubble up first that being said the Aussies aren't keen to progress the bubble until all states have COVID-19 under control. And that doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime soon. So I think the government's been forced to reassess its plans a little bit. Probably important to note that there are several Pacific nations that don't want to establish a bubble anytime soon and are happy to reduce their their coronavirus risks as much as possible because, of course, the health infrastructure in some of those Pacific countries is next to non-existent and you can imagine an outbreak would be dead devastating. Mm. But the Cook Islands, uh, I think, you know, probably makes sense if we don't have community transmission in New Zealand and it looks relatively safe for Kiwis to be travelling there. The Cook's tourism, uh, the, Cook, the Cook's economy depends on, on tourism in a massive way. And I know there'll be a lot of New Zealanders who are pretty enthusiastic about getting a break from the cold over winter and going and spending, you know, a few days up in the island. So um, it probably makes sense.
0: And that's us for this week. Thanks to New Zealand First MP Shane Jones and host of Q&A Jack Tame for joining us. Be sure to stay with us in the lead-up to September's general election.
1: We'll see you next week here on the No Filter podcast. The No Filter podcast was produced by students at the New Zealand Broadcasting School.